Open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 24. This is the last of the meal stories in Luke. And really, it's not much of a meal, just one bite of broiled fish, but that bite is so important uh, in demonstrating that what those gathered there were seeing, or who they were seeing, was not a spirit, was not a ghost, but was the risen Christ. So Luke chapter 24, and we will start in verse 36. So if you're able, would you stand with me? As I read the word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to this word that is before us. That it just might not be words on a page, but would be the living word. Would penetrate us, challenge us in how we are to live, Lord, and understand that you not only call us to a certain life, but you empower us to that life as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Now, if you have a pew Bible, you'll you'll know that at the end of verse 36, there's a little 42 written there. And if you go down the bottom of the page, you'll see that some ancient manuscripts insert, and he says to them, peace be with you there. Your Bible may have that. Um, or it may have the note, and you'll see a similar note after verse 34, um, uh, or or verse 40, uh, note 43. Um, So so now that I've messed things up, let's start again. Verse 36. (laughs) And while they were were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, last week, Dan gave the the first part of this section, the introduction of it, to where you have the two disciples who are on their way uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they come across a stranger who begins, uh, he he pleads ignorance. He doesn't know what's going on. They can't believe he doesn't know what's going on. Haven't you heard? And they tell him about Jesus who was crucified. And then this stranger, whom they don't recognize at this point, takes them to the scriptures. He takes them to the scriptures and taught them about the humiliation and the exaltation 
of the Messiah, which was foretold in the Old Testament. And then when they reach their destination, he sits down with them and he breaks bread and then their eyes are open to who he is. And you can just imagine their response, you know, like the gobs, gobstomped. Is that a word, gobstomped? You know, they were just like, oh, and he's gone. Okay, and he's gone from their presence. So they get up right then and they take the seven mile journey back to Jerusalem. Now they walked and, and from what we can understand they probably get to Emmaus late in the day or in the evening and then they're going to go back and that's not a road you typically want to travel at night but they, they, they are too excited to stay in Emmaus and wait for the next day. They run back to Jerusalem the seven miles back. They, Luke says they immediately made their way back so that they could tell the eleven what they had seen. They're telling others about their journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and while the words are still in their mouths, what they're saying, what what they experienced, he's there in the midst of the, the disciples. In a sealed room where the door is locked, suddenly they look up and they see Jesus. And you can understand why they thought it was a spirit or a ghost or they didn't believe what they were seeing. How could this possibly be? We locked that door because life was very difficult at that moment. And I mentioned that one particular note at the bottom of the page. Some manuscripts insert, he says to them, peace be with you. Because what do you think would be the first words of Jesus that he would say to this crowd who doubted so much, to this crowd who had abandoned him, to this crowd who had seen him work for three years, had lived with him, and had scattered? You think his words would have been, well, here am I, I told you I was coming back. You, you foolish people, you stupid heads, why didn't you believe me? No, he says, peace. He says, peace. I mean, what kind of Savior is this? Well, we're going to sing about what kind of Savior this is in just a moment. And, and it's a song... It's a song by P.P. Bliss. P.P. Bliss was one of the great hymn writers. If you look through the hymnal, you'll see in in the top above the stanzas, you'll see every once in a while his name, Philip P. Bliss or P.P. Bliss. And Ira Sankey, who was the song leader for D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody, uh, Moody Bible Institute, that's named after him. He was a great revivalist, and Sankey was his song leader. And Sankey wrote about P.P. Bliss and this hymn in particular. He says, a few weeks before his death, Mr. Bliss visited the state prison at Jackson, Michigan, where after a very touching address on the man of sorrows, he sang this hymn, this hymn is Hallelujah, What a Savior, with great effect. Many of the prisoners dated their conversion from that day. Now, when Mr. Moody and I were in Paris holding meetings in the old church which Napoleon had granted to the evangelicals, I frequently sang this hymn as a solo, asking the congregation to join in the single phrase, Hallelujah, what a Savior, which they did with splendid effect. It is said that the word hallelujah is the same in all languages. It seems as though God had prepared it for the great jubilee of heaven when all his children shall have been gathered home to sing hallelujah to the Lamb. So what kind of Savior do we have? Well, first off, we have a forgiving Savior. He knows everything there is to know about your heart and about my heart. He knows everything that there is in our hearts that ought to condemn us. But yet he says to us, peace. Spurgeon said, there is no sinner in this world who thinks that they are more desirous to be forgiven than he is ready to forgive. 
There is no one in this world who has ever wanted to be pardoned more than he is ready to pardon. He could have shown up in that room, like I said, here I am, I told you I was coming back, why didn't you believe? But that's not the type of Savior that we have. Now when Jesus speaks to them, look at at verse 37. They were startled. They were sitting there telling these things. He himself stood in their midst, but they were startled, frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit, thought that they were seeing a spirit. So naturally, to calm their fears, he doesn't berate them about their lack of faith, but in order to calm their fears, he says, see my hands, see my feet, look at my scars, I am real, I have a body. Now when the disciples hear this and, and, and see him, verse 41, and while they still could not believe it for joy. Your, your translation may say, and they disbelieved for joy. Not a way that we typically talk today, but we would say it was too good to be true. Too good to be true. You open up the door, and there's the guy with the, the, the five-foot check from Publishers Clearinghouse, and, and you know the TV cameras, and, and you close the door because, oh, it's too good to be true. I just can't believe it. Those things don't happen to me, Right? Well, to some degree, we are, uh, whether it's protection for us um, or, or maybe because it happens so infrequently, there is a, a, a tendency to not believe really, really good news. Oh, that can't be true. How could that possibly be? Uh, the disciples were prone to doubt the reports about Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, I, I mean, they, they had heard him talk about it. They had heard him say it but it really hadn't penetrated their minds yet and even the thought that it could possibly be true was just news that was too good to be believed now remember the women came back from the tomb and they said the tomb's empty and Jesus is risen and what did the disciples say really yeah that can't be true so Peter and, and James they run off or Peter and John they run off and they get to the tomb And Peter walks away, Scripture says, Peter walks away marveling. It doesn't say he walks away believing. It says he walks away marveling. There's a distinction between there, between those two. And then we have here on the road to Emmaus, Jesus shows up to the two and and communicates to them. But the, the apostles did not at first believe. Then while these things are happening in the midst of the room, Jesus shows up. Now, what do you think ran through their minds at this point? Here's Jesus in a sealed room, and they saw him die. They know he was buried in that tomb, and here he is in that room. Well, their first thought was, can't possibly be a human being. I mean, human beings don't rise from the dead, right? It must be a spirit. It must be a spirit, some kind of vision. Not uncommon. So let's look at Acts 12. Let's turn to Acts chapter 12 and find a a similar incident to this. I love this this incident in Acts chapter 12. Not that any of us would be this way. Okay, I understand that. We we would not be this way. Uh, But this is what happens. In Acts chapter 12, um, uh, let me set the stage for you. Peter's in prison. Okay. Peter's in prison. Why? Because he's been preaching the gospel. That's what happens to you in the first century. And when you begin to preach the gospel and lives are changed, they put you in prison. And he's sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with chains 
to the wall or to those two soldiers. So in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, well, go back to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So the church is gathered together praying for Peter's release. Remember that. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him. You know, I think of this, how do you, how do you wake up your friend who's sleeping on the floor? You kick him. Okay, did the angel come alongside? Peter, get up, get up. Okay. Peter, he struck Peter's side saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so, and he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, understand, you wake up in the middle of the night, somebody kicks you, your, your chains fall off, he tells you to wrap up, and says, follow me, and you're in a cell, and you say, well, where are we going? Okay, and, ah, and he went out, because the door was open, and continued to follow, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's going, well, maybe I'm, I'm dreaming, and this is what I really want to happen, so I'm, I'm hoping that it will happen, but in reality, it is real. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, uh, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And what were they praying for? Peter's release. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced, okay, it's, and he says, who's there? He says, well, it's Peter. And she's like, why? And so she runs off. She doesn't open the gate. So she runs off, ran in and announced to the church, I'm, I'm adding this in scripture, to the church who was praying for Peter's release, that Peter was standing at the front gate. And they said to her, are you out of your mind? But she said, no, this is Peter. And they said, no, no, it's an angel. Now, now get away from us. We have to go back and pray for Peter's release. I, I added that part too. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. That's what they were praying for. <laughs> That's what they were praying for and asking the Lord to do. But they were shocked. Okay, they couldn't believe it. Much like the, the guys here who are gathered upstairs, and Jesus shows up in the room, and they can't believe it's Jesus. And he says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. I am the one. I am the one. Well, here in the first century church, and in, in the room gathered, they're not exactly an illustration of men of great faith here. Now, one of the strongest illustrations, one of the strongest proofs, of the resurrection is the fact that the disciples were so prone to disbelief. They were prone to disbelief, almost as if every time evidence of what was true came to them, they disbelieved it, and Jesus had to keep demonstrating to them that what he had preached and what he said was real and was true. Go back to Luke chapter 24. Now, if they had immediately jumped to the conclusion that, yes, Jesus had risen from the grave, we might think that it was just 
you know, wishful thinking, and, and they were too easily convinced. But it's clear here that Jesus, in a sense, had to force evidence upon them so that they would know that what was before them was true. So the Lord confronts them regarding their doubts. But he said, they, they, they could not believe it for joy. John Calvin writes, Now, we have it right. Indeed, when any appearance of absurdity presents itself to inquire by weighing the arguments on both sides, and indeed, so long as matters are doubtful, our minds must inevitably be driven about in every direction. But we must observe sobriety and moderation, lest the flesh exalt itself more highly than it ought and throw out its thoughts far and wide against heaven. Translation, test it. Test it. Now, in our spiritual lives, if something is brought before us, we test it according to Scripture. Is it real? Is this something that we find in Scripture that is justified? Test it according to Scripture. And you would think that that this would have run past their minds. Well, how could he rise from the dead? Isn't that what Scripture said was going to happen to him? So, again... Jesus says, well, let me give you another proof. Do you have anything to eat? Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it. Flesh and bones eat. Spirits do not eat. And then, verses 44 through 47, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while you were still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then we have this phrase that is so very important for us to understand. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't they understand he had been preaching this? Why didn't he understand that they had, he had been telling them this? Why didn't they understand that this had been laid out for them in the Old Testament? Because their minds had not been opened to understand the scriptures as of yet. You got the two guys on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is there. They don't understand who he is until he opens their eyes to that. He took them back to the scriptures. They're struggling with disbelief. So where does he take them to help their disbelief, their unbelief? Back to the scriptures. And then he opens their eyes to it. This is the third time in Luke. That he does this, sounds like a theme, where he mentions this type of thing, opening their minds to understand the Word of God. So we better look at this a little bit more in depth. Psalm 119, David writes, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, Lord. Without God's help, we are simply natural people, and our eyes are simply natural eyes. You have a non-believer who opens the book, and he reads it, and goes, oh, cool. And that's as far as he gets. But when the Lord opens our eyes, and the Holy Spirit illumines our mind, when we read the Word of God, we go, cool, but it sinks in, and, and we understand it to be, this is God's Word to us. This is how He calls us to live. This is how we are to order our lives. Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, not able to see them, because they are spiritually discerned. Not discerned just with our eyes, but are spiritually discerned. Jesus has a phrase for those 
who are not spiritually in tune. He says, seeing they do not see. Seeing they do not see. This is why Paul prays for Christians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I read a book just recently called A Flight Path. It was a biography of Frank Barker. Many of you will know that name as the founding pastor of Briarwood down in Birmingham. And Barker talks about his many years, even, even when he was in seminary, when he did not understand some of the most important doctrines that were in Scripture, particularly that salvation is a gift of God, that it cannot be earned, that it is the work of Christ alone and is given to us. So it wasn't until a friend gave him a track which explained it to him. Now, he's in seminary at this point, I understand and, and what is striking about his experience was he was previous, previously in, un, unable to hear this same truth, even though it had been presented to him on many, many occasions. He writes, I wondered why no one had ever told me that salvation was a gift. Then I thought, well, isn't it strange that Martin Luther didn't know that? And the reason I thought about Martin Luther, he writes, was that I was just read one of his commentaries on Galatians for a seminary course. If Luther had known that salvation was a gift, he would have brought it out in that book. It only makes sense. So I wanted to see how I had missed it or how Luther had missed it. So I pulled the commentary off the shelf and reread it, and to my amazement, it was on every page. I thought I must have been blind when I read this book. Yeah, you were. It dawned on me that I was blind and that God had opened my eyes, my spiritual eyes. I had been trying to do it on my own. And so I also became concerned about other people and whether their eyes were blind as well. So the next time I went home, I was concerned about my parents. The next time I went home, I blurted out my question during supper. Mother and dad, do you understand that salvation is a gift that you don't earn or deserve? And they looked at him and said, yes. <laughs> and he said, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> well, we did, but it didn't soak in. God had to open your eyes to it. Now, I, I, this, I, I, can, I remember this explicitly in my own life. I was in seminary. This, I had finished my first year, and I went to a conference in, in North Hills of Pittsburgh, and it was about the sovereignty of God. And there is... Dr. John Gerstner, and he is preaching, he's probably 80, 82, he's preaching for 50 minutes on the problem of evil and the sovereignty of God. And it was as if the angels sang and the curtains opened, and I finally understood. And that was next to my conversion. That is the, the most revelatory moment, spiritually speaking, in my life, where I understood that God is sovereign over all things, and yes, there is evil in the world. I mean, we've seen it this week. There's evil in the world, but yet he is still in control. There is not a single molecule out of his control. And I thought, I sat in that pew and I said, how come nobody ever told me this before? And it was right there, Romans 9, right there on the pages. But yet it had to be spiritually discerned. Calvin writes, Indeed, the word of God is like the sun, shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed, but with no effect among the blind. Now all of us are blind by nature in this respect, 
Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through his illumination, makes entry for it. Makes entry for it. Now, you might be thinking, you know, how is it possible that somebody can sit in church for 20 years? How is it possible that they can see, and I'll just pick on guys, how is it that, that, that a guy can sit in church for 20 years and see his li- wife's life completely changed by the gospel, to see his children's life completely changed by the gospel, but it has no effect upon his heart? He sees it at home. He sees it in his kids. He goes to church on a regular basis. He hears it, but it just doesn't penetrate. And then one day, all of a sudden, we think all of a sudden, but yet in God's plan, this was the day of his salvation. His eyes are open and he looks around and says, why didn't any of you tell me this before? His eyes couldn't see it because he was spiritually blind at that time. Jesus is opening the disciples' eyes to what he has already been teaching them, to what is laid out clearly in the Old Testament. It was vital for their faith to understand that what had happened to Jesus was not an accident. It had been planned from before the foundations of the earth. It had been planned. It was part of God's plan. He had written it into his word. And in verse 36, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. This is Luke's great commission. We typically think of Matthew's great commission. This is Luke's great commission. Okay, Basically the same thing. Three things have to happen. Christ should suffer. Christ should be raised, and repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed by those who are witnesses to it. So we have two of the things that have happened already. Christ has suffered. Christ has been raised. Now he says, behold, you're the ones who are going to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to the world. You're going to start in Jerusalem, and you're going to go out from there. He says, I'm not going to send you out by yourself. Verse 49. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of my Father would be the Holy Spirit. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now remember, Luke is also the author of Acts. Original manuscripts, we get Luke Acts is basically one long book, and we divide it into two. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And the first sermon we, is preached is preached by Peter. And how many people come to Christ in that one sermon? 3,000 are added to the church that day. 3,000. What was the difference between what Peter said the day before and what Peter said on that day? The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. All of these men in this room, had, in that room, had believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they were still struggling with unbelief regarding the resurrection. So Jesus deals with them gently. He deals with them kindly. He encourages them, shows them the proof, and then opens their eyes to what is right before them. You think, well, couldn't he have picked some people who were a little bit more trustworthy, a little bit more faithful, a little bit more, you know, uh, committed to him. And, and what we have here are a bunch of imperfect people whom the Lord calls. 
A bunch of imperfect people whom the Lord opens their eyes to the truth, changes their life, and empowers them with the Holy Spirit to change the world. So how many of you are imperfect today? The answer is right here then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us. I mean, we, we wonder at why in the world you would call the likes of us. Why would you extend this fantastic grace to people like us? But your word is clear. This is the way you do it. We have to understand. We have to be weak so that we're made strong. And we're made strong in ways that, are, that we came and dream or imagine to accomplish things for your kingdom, to accomplish things that you have prepared for us to do before the foundations of the earth. This is your plan. Lord, we don't always see all of it, but we know we're called to be faithful to what you call us to do. We have doubts. We have days that we're obstinate. We have days that we're weak. But yet, you still, you knew that, but yet you called us. You knew that, yet you empower us. You, you knew that, yet you still are willing to use us for your purposes. Lord, there are people in our lives at work. People in our lives might live next to us. Perhaps there are people in our lives in our very homes that need to hear the things of the gospel. Lord, we can share it with them, but you have to open their eyes to it. So we pray that we are faithful in communicating what is true. That is, that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. That he calls us and you draw us unto yourself that we might know this new life, that we may have a new heart planted within us that our eyes might be open. Lord, help us proclaim this faithfully and we will trust that you will open their eyes and their lives will be forever changed in the same way that you have done for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.